Pastor Mark Wilson from Cannon Hills Community Church. He has uh, served at Cannon Hills since 2017. He is a TMS graduate, no surprise, and a native of Washington State. Please welcome Pastor Mark. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to uh, join you for worship this morning. I've been here once before and had a great time and appreciate the opportunity to be welcomed back yet again. Uh, have a few friends that attend here and even uh, relatives that attend here, but I'll leave them anonymous in case things don't go well this morning. <laughs> I don't know who to blame. Uh, we put it in the Lord's hands and trust him for this morning and just pray that as we stick to his word, he will exalt his name. As we lift high his, re his revelation, he will in fact accomplish his good purposes. Isaiah 55 tells us that never will his word go forth and return nothing. It is impossible. His word will always accomplish what he desires. On that note, please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I am so excited to turn to this passage with you today because it is a foundational text in God's word. It reveals not only the nature and character of who God is, but lays before us the nature, character, identity of those who would call themselves His. So as you're turning to Deuteronomy 6, let me also just take a little rabbit trail real quick here and address one of the modern-day criticisms. Some would say, why are we going to the Old Testament? Some would say, aren't the first 39 books of the Bible expired? Some would say, isn't that old news? Some would say, shouldn't we unhitch from the Old Testament? And I would say, no, absolutely not. They are not expired. In fact, they are inspired and eternal. And so going to Deuteronomy 6 is just as valid today as it ever was and ever will be. So we hold to it. In fact, Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 said, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The all scripture that he's referring to there is the Old Testament. In fact, even Jesus in John 5, 39 said, the Old Testament speaks of me. To summarize this another way, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not begin in Matthew 1, 1. It begins in Genesis 1, 1. And so we should never unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. We must never do that. In fact, as we go here, we're also reminded of Romans 15.4. For things that were written in earlier times were written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and encouragement of the saints of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now back to our text today in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see throughout Scripture that God is building for himself a kingdom of people, saved and sanctified by His grace and for His glory, and invited to enjoy Him forever. Isn't it wonderful that God invites you to Himself to enjoy Him? God then calls this people, calls us, His people, to invest our lives in His kingdom with everything we are, with everything we have, every day of our lives. Now, the bad news is that in and of ourselves, we really have nothing to invest into God's kingdom. In and of ourselves. You see, God's kingdom is built from 100% pure righteousness, and none of us in and of ourselves have that. Romans 3 tells us none are righteous, not even one. And yet the good news, the good news is that 
Even though none of us has this, God has provided it. By, the, by living the perfect life that we wouldn't and dying the sufficient death that we couldn't, Jesus both fulfilled God's righteousness and satisfied his holy justice so that all who confess Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be recipients of his righteousness, children of in his family, adopted into his family, and citizens in his kingdom. And in light of this gospel, this good news, if we are kingdom citizens, what is it that we are to do? Who are we to be? How are we to reach the world? We have what we call a philosophy of ministry. So in the scriptures, God presents himself to us. He calls us together as a people. And the day we're in today, we're called the church. And then he gives us marching orders. We call that a philosophy of ministry. Why we do what we do and how we do it. And every church expresses it differently as far as local churches go. But it three, has three prongs to it. We worship him. We have a work of service of one another. And we witness to the world. We have the upward, the inward, and the outward. We exalt him, we edify one another, and we evangelize the world. The same three things in every church. That's what we're called to do. And in fact, Living Hope, I looked on your website this morning, Living Hope Bible Church desires to glorify God in all we do through what? God-centered worship, building one another up, and sharing the gospel message to all. We find the genesis, the beginning, the starting point of those three aspects of our commission are call our marching orders. We find that in Deuteronomy 6. That's where we're going today. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, and then uh, I'll pray and start us out for the day. In Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 1, now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I am commanding you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk, milk and honey. And pick it up in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your head, hand and shall be, they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then... Watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this morning and your amazing grace. We trust, Father, that as your word goes forward, you will accomplish your good purposes. We just pray, Father, that we would be faithful to hear, to heed, to obey that which you've given us.
that we might exalt your name, that we might live before you in a manner that's pleasing to you. But Lord, we can't do this on your own, so we ask for your grace, your guidance this morning by your spirit. Lead us, Lord God. Provide insight. Convict us that we might leave here new, ready to serve and worship you and tell the world about the greatness of our God. We love you, Lord God, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with a little bit of context. The year is 1405 B.C. The people of Israel are, Israel are gathered in Moab, and they're ready to cross the Jordan River to go into the land that God had promised them 40 years prior. Moses is in his last days, and he will not be crossing over with them due to his own rebellion. However, God uses Moses to, to deliver a series of speeches. These speeches are collected and gathered and put into what we call now the book of Deuteronomy. In these speeches, he is preparing the people to go into what God has promised. And he summarizes the entire book, if you will, in these few verses, verses 4 through 9. First, he gives them a great confession for entering into a relationship with their God. We'll see that in verse 4. Then he gives them a great commandment for cultivating this relationship with their God. We'll see that in verse 5. And ultimately, he gives them a great commission for perpetuating a relationship with this God. We'll see that in verses 6 through 9. Does this sound like anything that's expired? Absolutely not. Very valid for us today. God's word is eternal, and we apply it even now. So to set the stage for this a little bit, let me just remind you of verses 1 to 3. Moses is indeed at this point pleading with them. We could even say Moses is begging them at this point. And he wants them to hear this. He says what? Fear the Lord. I'm telling you this so that you might fear the Lord. But in fearing the Lord, notice what he also says in verse 3, that it might go well with you. Moses is pleading and begging, and yet he says, this is for your good. This is for your joy, and not only yours, but in fact, those who would come after you, your children and your grandchildren. So fear the Lord. This instruction is for your good and for you to be faithful kingdom citizens in the place where God is now leading you. Amidst this pleading that, God, that Moses is giving them, he starts in verse 4 with this statement. You see it there in your Bibles. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. This verse is the beginning of what is known as the Shema. That's why I titled the message the Shema. It's the Hebrew word for hear. And it's called that because that's the first word in the text, both in the English as well as the Hebrew text. Hear, Shema. Hear what God is about to say. This is a direct command from God, and he's calling us to not only hear, but in fact to heed, that is to obey his instruction. He wants us to hear with readiness. Every time God reveals himself, it demands a response, right? Because he is God. But when God takes the time and focuses specifically to say, hear, listen to me, we ought to pay, pay special attention. It's kind of like when your child grows up and they're 16 years old and you have the car keys and you're holding them out and you're saying, now, Hear what I'm about to say to you. What you mean is, I'm going to tell you something that you're going to be held accountable for and you need to know. We might say this to our child before they get a cell phone, before they get a computer, whatever the case might be. They are about to go into the land that God has promised, full of milk and honey and all good things, but there's temptations. There are dangers and there are instructions for navigating through those. 
And so God says, hear, hear with the intent to obey. Look at me and hear what I'm about to say to you, he says. And so I must do my job and ask you at this point, are you ready to hear God's word? Are you ready to hear in such a way that you're ready to respond, obey to what God has for us today so that, let's not forget, so that it might go well with you where God is leading you tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So the first point we have for today, for you to be a faithful kingdom citizen, first, you must be exclusively committed to worshiping God for who he is. You must be exclusively committed to worshiping God for who he is. Now, I know the blanks on your outline are a little small there. That's okay. God always gives us more than we're able to handle. Just squeeze it in there. Make it happen. Write arrows. Write it above there, whatever the case might be. But who is this one true God? He is the Lord. And in fact, right here, he says, my name is Yahweh. He is Yahweh, the Lord, the personal covenant-making, promise-keeping God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. His name is I Am, meaning he is the self-existent one, the first and the last. The one who always has been, the one who will be, the one who created the heavens and the earth and you and me. Yahweh is the one who our ancestors rebelled against in the garden, and we have as well. Yahweh is the one who promised the sending of a Savior. And Yahweh is the one who gives the good promises and commands us to repent that we might receive the Savior because he is indeed the one that we will stand before on judgment day. This is Yahweh, the Lord, our God, and it is he alone that we love and serve. He is the one, true, living, eternal, sovereign God over all creation. That's what's being spoken of here. He is revealing himself for who he is. Joel chapter 2, verse 32, we read, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, will be delivered or will be saved. Paul's going to quote that same verse in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, and say, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, but he refers to the Lord as being Jesus at that point. This is our Lord. This is our God. This is our Savior. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, God calls and requires his kingdom, his people, to be exclusively committed to worshiping him. And this requirement stands true for each of us today. And this means that we must start with a confession the word confess means that we say the same thing as God. We come and we say the same thing about God that he has chosen to reveal about himself to us. That's what it means to confess. God is telling his people on this day that this is who he is. He is the Lord, our God, and he is one. First, he is our God, speaking of his ownership of us. He is our God. And second, he is one God, speaking of the unity that he has in himself. Taking those one at a time, as to his ownership of us, this means that we affirm that the Lord is our God, our only God. Our only God. We must not allow any competing gods of this world, little g, to take away, distract from the worship, the, the affection, the service that belongs to our God. You might have heard the saying, he is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. And that's true in your life. He is Lord of all. 
He doesn't want half-hearted commitments and phony affections from divided hearts. He wants all of you all the time, everywhere. Unfortunately, this is what too much in modern-day Christianity have done. It's popular today to have no lasting commitments, only temporary interests and hobbies. Quite honestly, too many professing believers in America today have become religious tourists and spiritual collectors. You just travel around and gather what pleases you and create your own religion, which means you've just created your own God. To say it another way, many professing Christians try to survive on cotton candy Christianity, bumblegum theology, and Red Bull worship. It just dissolves in your mouth, you chew on it for a while, you spit it out, and maybe you get a little bit of a high when you go and you hear They are malnourished, illiterate, and constantly distracted. But that's not God's command for us, is it? Listen to this. God demands more from you because He desires more for you. You need to hear that. God demands more from you because He desires more for you. For your good, He is giving us these good commands. Yahweh requires that we have an exclusive commitment to worshiping Him alone. This is why, get this, in chapters 5 through 8 of Deuteronomy, 35 times Moses will say, He is your God. He is our God. There's a unique relationship that we have with Him in every single command that He gives, everything that He reveals about Himself, every time He opens a door, all around it. Above, below, and in, and through, and all the rest, he says, I'm your God. Don't forget. I'm your God. Don't forget. Remember what we read in Deuteronomy 6. When you get into the land and you enjoy all these good things, what does he say? Verse 12, watch yourself that you do not forget Yahweh, that you do not forget your God. He owns me. So when you're asked, choose this day whom you will serve, you say, I will serve the Lord my God because he owns me. I am his. The devil tried this with Jesus, didn't he, in Matthew chapter 4? He brings them up to a very high mountain. He shows them all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all this I'll give to you if you will but bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, go away, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only, exclusively. By the way, Jesus is quoting from this same passage, verse 13 of Deuteronomy 6. The point is this, don't be fooled by anybody's claim to provide what only God can deliver. Forgiveness of sins, a cleansed conscience, and the hope of eternal life. The world can never provide those. God has never designed it that way. But exclusive worship also means that we confess His oneness. The unity of His nature, the uniqueness of His person. The Lord is one. He is the only true God. Yahweh is one. This is the great statement of what we call monotheism. Mono meaning one and theism referring to deity. There is only one God, capital G, that exists. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not God's, God. In Isaiah Chapter 45, verse 6, God says, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And even in Revelation, from first to last, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
The God whom we serve, Yahweh himself, is the only God, not just the God of our preference. He is God alone. Now, I need to rabbit trail here for a second, just clarify. If, if you're wondering, how does monotheism fit in with the doctrine of the Trinity? Let me just give you a couple of quick points here. We'll just dip our toe in the water. First, the word used here for one does not exclude the, the possibility of plurality of persons. It's what we call a compound singular. The same word was used in Genesis 2.24 when one man and one woman become one flesh. So the idea is allowable in the text. Secondly, there's an amazing correspondence between Deuteronomy 6 and Matthew 28. In Deuteronomy 6, God says, confess me to be one indeed. And then in Matthew 28, God commands the church and he says, go and preach the gospel and baptize in the name, singular, one person, one God, I should say one God, one nature, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, putting the definite article before each. And so we have three persons in one God, completely consistent in the scriptures. And not to mention, third and finally, that Jesus had no problem quoting this very same verse and at the same time claiming his own deity. So we don't see any contradiction there. We certainly do see the limitations of our own intellect. But that's kind of the nature of God, isn't it? If we could wrap our minds around all that God is, well, that might be a problem. He wouldn't be God. Truly, God is beyond our full understanding. Therefore, as Christians, we confess, we agree with God's testimony concerning himself. He is one God in essence, one God in nature, and yet three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now having said all that, and that's quite a lot, what in the world does this have to do with my life? Okay, I can understand the theology of what you're saying to one degree, the best I can grab it, but how does that truth relate to my relationships today? How does it relate to my future goals, my daily living, my moment-by-moment decision-making? I can affirm the reality of what you're saying, but let me pack that away so that it's something useful for me. Well, this truth is actually the centerpiece of the gospel. That's the lens of your worldview. It is really your Christian ethic. What you believe about God will always translate into your daily living. When you are tempted today to watch something offensive to God, listen to something contrary to his truth, participate in an unprofitable discussion. When your flesh rises up with its lusts, recall this to mind. The Lord is my God. I am his. I belong to him. He owns me. And the Lord is one, meaning he demands my exclusive commitment. Therefore, I will worship and serve him alone. That's exactly what Jesus said in the moment of temptation. That's what we ought to say as well. It has been said, and I think rightfully so, that every decision is an act of worship. Because every decision expresses a desire, expresses an aim, ex- expresses a goal. There's something that you want, and every decision you make has a, has a trajectory, if you will. Therefore, every decision is an opportunity to demonstrate and affirm your love for the one true God who has claimed you as his own. And so, in every moment of every day, the fact that he is the Lord our God and he is one comes into play in every single decision that we make. Again, to be in right relationship with God, 
and be a faithful kingdom citizen, we must be exclusively committed to worshiping God for who he is. Now, as I mentioned earlier, every time God reveals himself, it demands a response. In the great confession of verse 4, he has revealed himself. But how should we respond to what he has revealed about himself? I love this about God's word. It's so instructive. Every time a question comes up, we just keep reading, and often God answers for us, doesn't he? And so we see it, in fact, in verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Verse five is what is known as the first and greatest commandment. Uh, That's not just my opinion, that's the testimony of our Lord, Jesus Christ. When he was asked in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, what is the first and foremost commandment? He quotes this verse, Deuteronomy 6, 5. So we find here our second point for today, to be a faithful kingdom citizen, not only must you be exclusively committed to worshiping the one true God for who he is, you must be completely devoted to loving God with all you are. You must be completely devoted to loving God with all you are. What does this look like? Again, we don't have to guess. The scriptures take us by the hand and walk us through it. First, God says, love me with all your heart. Love me with all your heart. You already know that often in the scriptures when the heart is referred to, it's not the blood pumping organ in your chest, but really it's the causal core of your personhood, as Paul Tripp likes to say. It's the place inside of you that makes decisions, has passions, and is the mind and the intellect. Your decisions are made there. So to be wholly devoted to loving God with all your heart means to employ the fullness of who you are in your mind and intellect, in your passions, and in your will. So that we are actively, intentionally thinking, deciding, responding in a way that pleases God above all else. Not even a corner of our heart. Okay, this is what God requires. That not even a corner of our heart is reserved for selfish gain or evil motives. We don't even have a closet in the household of our heart that has unfruitful, useless things. To love God with all your heart requires the death of selfish ambition to serve him. Isn't this what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5? We make it our aim or we have as our ambition, whether alive or dead, to be pleasing to him. In fact, that's why Jesus died, Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died so that those you who are redeemed would no longer live for yourself but for him. That's loving God with all of our heart. This means that doing his will is your greatest joy. This means that hungering and thirsting after righteousness is more satisfying to you than those fleshly pursuits. This means you find more pleasure in God's revelation than man-made entertainment. God requires wholehearted devotion. This is why Proverbs 23 warns us, watch over your heart, for from it flow the wellsprings of life. Be careful with your heart. Contrary to the advice of Disney, don't just follow your heart. Rather, devote your heart to loving God completely and then guard it as the Word of God and the Spirit of God Train it and guide it. But that's not all. He also says to love him with all your soul. 
Here, the soul refers to the whole self, one's entire being, your essence, your identity, your very personhood are to be inseparable from the one who owns you. If you are his, then you are known to be his. Loving God with all your soul means that your identity is found in him. Let me just really quickly, Colossians chapter 3, you can just listen or you can flip there quickly if you'd like. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul tells them to now put on the new self. If you are redeemed in Christ and find your identity in Christ, then you must show that that identity is true. In Colossians chapter 3, pick it up in verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now, did you catch that? If you are still pursuing fleshly lusts and worldly stuff, you are practicing idolatry which is ultimately the worship of false gods, which is ultimately just the worship of yourself because there is not even such thing as a false god. It's just us pursuing our own ends. Loving God with all our soul is dying to ourselves so that we might become as he made you to be and as he redeemed you to be in Christ Jesus. You must be completely devoted to loving God with all you are. But also, there's still more. You must love God with all of your might. Because of the way the word might is translated, we might suppose that it's physical strength that's being spoken of here. And it certainly includes that, but there's much more. It's not just your physical strength, but it's your personal stuff, if you will. Your money, your homes, your clothing, your cars, as well as your influence and your authority. They are all part of your might. Everything that belongs to you or is obtained by you for you to spend as you will is your might, is your stuff. Sometimes it's tangible, sometimes it's intangible, but regardless, it's yours, you own it to do with as you please, or is it? God commands that all of it be generously and sacrificially used for his purposes and ends. For what do you have that you did not first receive from the Lord, the scriptures ask. We are simply stewards of what God has given to us, and we call our might, our gifts, our stuff. What would you say is the most valuable thing that you have access to that's yours? Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your... God has given those to you so that that might be used as an expression of loving him with all that you are, your heart, your soul, and your might. This means that you're not striving to to make a stake of your own claim on a project, a preference, or a position, but you're daily investing in God's reputation more than your own. You're faithfully building his kingdom and not your own. You're looking to work for those things that will outshine and outlast you every single day of your life. You're pouring into those things that are eternal. It means that you're willing to humbly, now get this, to love God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. You're willing to humbly, and yet with joy and satisfaction, serve your spouse. Love your neighbor. 
Give to the poor. Labor to see your children be less like you and more like Jesus. You're sacrificially giving of your own self and you're wholly devoted to loving God in this location, in your situation, in this generation. Because Acts chapter 17 says this is exactly where God is designed to place you for his glory. Because he is your God and because you are his child. But this work of service doesn't stop in this generation. And that leads us to our final point. To be a faithful kingdom citizen, you must not only be exclusively committing to worship God for all he is and completely devoted to loving God with all you are, you also must be diligently participating in spiritual formation. Diligently participating in spiritual formation. We saw that in verses 6 through 9. Do you realize that everyone is being formed spiritually every day all the time. Some are being made into the image of God's Son, and some are more and more being made into the image of this world. You won't leave church today the same as when you arrived. It's impossible. There are various decisions, relationships, observations, experience, things that come flooding in, and each, of one, each one of those things has an influence on your heart, on your soul, on your conscience, on your life. And so we must be diligently participating with how we are being formed. We cannot be passive about this. We must be active in the formation of our souls. And we do this by discerning and determining the content of our daily spiritual diet. Look again at verse 6. These words which I command you today, these words, these words, the content that God has for you to grow spiritually is his holy word. This is the food that he has given to us. For Israel on that day, these words included the Shema, verses 4 through 9, possibly even Deuteronomy, most likely Genesis 1-1 through the end of Deuteronomy. All that God had revealed up to that time was theirs to obey, to know, to consume. For us today, it's still the Shema, but it's the entirety of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. The word of God is God's prescription for your spiritual formation. And he has given the spirit of God himself to live within you, to hunger for, take in, digest, and work out that formation for his glory and for our good. But notice that he says, and please hear this, these words shall be on your, 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 your heart. He says that you should teach them diligently, but teaching them begins with you being teachable. Expecting others to come under God's word means that you're meeting them there under God's word, the authority of his word, the power of his word. Participation in spiritual formation and perpetuating the faith to the next generation, as we're called to here, begins in our own hearts. You must be feeding, washing, saturating, forming your own heart with God's word through personal devotions, memorization, meditation, prayer, conversations with others, casual reading, music, movies, 
pictures on your wall, whatever the case might be, saturate yourself with an abundant diet of God's word. You're not going to find this kind of dieting advice anywhere else. (laughs) I mean, this is good news. Your daily intake of God's word should be meaty, healthy, sweet, high in calories, and a whole lot of gluten. Okay, maybe not that last part, but you get the picture. Take in enough of God's word that you're chewing on it all day. Has substance to it. It makes an impact on your life. So I'd like to ask you a question. Who would you say is the most concerned? Who would you say is the most concerned person with your spiritual formation? Well, most certainly God, right? He is intimately, actively, and sovereignly caring for your soul. Thank you, Lord. How about your spouse? They're forming you, whether you like it or not. They are forming you, and God means it for good. How about your parents? If they know Christ, they're most certainly concerned, and whether believers or not, they do have an influence. How about your peers? Are they positively or negatively influencing you toward Christ-likeness? What about Satan? Is he concerned about your spiritual formation? Oh, you bet. Now, Satan isn't all places at all times. He's not sovereign in that way. But he's certainly the prince of the power of the air, and he has an orchestrated effort to influence you as much as possible wherever you're at. So that being said, don't let your concern over your own spiritual formation fall short of that which your adversary has. If he is concerned about you not becoming like Christ, you need to be all the more diligent, active, and aggressive in pursuit of Christ-likeness. We must be concerned about our spiritual formation. In fact, look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. I love that. This is God's word through Moses to the people. I just want you to feel the, the passion of these words. Deuteronomy 5, 29. God says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. Why? That it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Do you get that God is not passive about your spiritual formation? God is not passively loving you. He is actively, aggressively, sovereignly, and yet so intimately and gently loving us for our good. It's not just just obey because God said, and even though that's enough, God is gracious enough to give us the answer or the, the, the purpose behind it and say, it's not only for my, gl- my glory, but in my glory is your greatest good. God provides for his children. You know what it means when somebody sacrifices to provide you that which is best for you? That's called love. God loves you. And loved ones, God has graciously given you everything that you need to be diligent, diligently participating in spiritual formation. Now, as you're about this work of cultivating your own spiritual formation, don't forget to take a second or two and work on your kids. I kind of say that facetiously because it takes more than a second or two, doesn't it? And quite honestly, most often, The Lord reveals how much growth I still need as I try to work on my kids. I've got a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old, and they're a wonderful blessing, but they're a lot of work, which shows that I am still a lot of work. (laughs) 
How many of you can relate with that morning at church where you said, oh, Lord, I am, I am in over my head this morning with what I've got to shepherd, <laughs> to care for? Can we just get out of the van? Can we just get out of church? I'll be holy and complete when we get home, Lord. <laughs> he puts us in over his head, over our head, to show his sufficiency. And he calls us, he commands us, he teaches us to teach them. Verse 7, teach them diligently. This is not only a command for every parent to obey, but a parent's high, high, high calling. We have this high calling entrusted to us. Do you get that? The souls of the next generation are in your care? We have the souls, living beings that God has sovereignly prescribed to be under our care. Ought we not to be very concerned for them and diligent about teaching them? You might find it interesting that this word for teach, literally, Hebrew, shanan, means to impress or engrave. And it has the idea of a repeated work that makes an impression over time. That sounds a lot like parenting. That sounds a lot like parenting. In fact, one translation puts it this way, drill them into your children. Ah, I like that. That really spells it out for me. Teach them diligently. All of these communicate one idea. If you desire your children to know God, you must be diligent about their spiritual formation. Oh, their salvation is in the hands of God. He is sovereign, absolutely. But he has most often prescribed that they would hear about him through you. And we must be faithful toward that end. We must never neglect this privilege and this platform. In fact, it was Francis Schaeffer just a couple generations ago who said, if we do not make clear by word and practice our position for truth as truth and against false doctrine, we are building a wall between the next generation and the gospel. Do you get that? Neglect in this area is active participation of separating the next generation from the gospel. J.C. Ryle, who knows how to really stab you in the heart, says it this way. Strive to be a living example of Christ. Be an example of reverence for the word of God. You are their model picture, and they will copy what you are. Your reasoning, your lecturing, your wise commands, and your good advice they may or may not understand this, but they understand your life. We must be diligent to form our own hearts that we might be qualified to form the hearts of those whom God has put, in a, put under our care. Let's take a look for a moment at how this diligent participation should take place. Did you notice verse 7? Not only are you too diligently teach them. You are to talk of them, speak of them. I love this. Here's an instructive place in scripture for you. Acts chapter 8 verse 35. You remember God brings Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch and the eunuch is reading scripture. And I love it. Acts chapter 8 verse 35. It says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the scriptures, preached Jesus to him. Now, that's just really kind of oversimplified, isn't it? Well, it sounds very instructive. And let me say it this way. Open your mouth. Teach them diligently means this. Open your mouth. And beginning from the scriptures, preach Jesus. 
That's our calling. That's what we do. It can't really be that simple, though. Well, it certainly starts there, doesn't it? We open our mouth and preach Jesus to them. Where do we do this? When do we do this? We do it now and we do it everywhere. We do it right now and we do it everywhere. I love that the scriptures know, God <clears throat> excuse me, knows that we live busy lives. We're on the go, we're on the move, but these are instructions for busy lives. God says, hey, when you're sitting down in the house, teach them. When you're walking by the way, teach them. When you're lying down at night, teach them. When you get up in the morning, teach them. When, Lord? <sighs> Everywhere, all the time, teach them. Teach them. Teach them. Morning devotions, evening devotions, that's great. But that should not be all that you teach them. It doesn't fit into a compartment. It fits into a life. This also implies that you're present. You not only need to open your mouth and speak, but you have to be there. Most of us are active, but in all of our activity for our family, don't be absent from your family. You might think you are making the most of those precious moments when you have them, but quality of time almost always comes through quantity of time. You are the only mom they have. Be the mother they need. You are, on, you are the only dad they have. Be the father they need. Okay, so they have a few grandparents. Be the grandparent they need. Be the grandparent they love. As for verses 8 and 9, these verses show us that the building of God's kingdom goes beyond your heart and your home. It should be lived out in your community. Bind them as a sign on your hand, literally your forearm, on frontlets between your eyes. It means that in all your daily activities and dealings with others, people should know who you belong to. God wasn't telling the people of Israel to actually write it on their arms and put it on their foreheads in little boxes, even though that's what many of them did. The whole point is that in all of your dealings with other people, it must be evident to whom you belong and to whom your worship belongs. To write them on the doorpost as well means that your community knows to whom you serve and belong and worship and all of the rest. Does your hairdresser know you're a Christian? Does the person at Home Depot that you've seen a lot of times this summer know you're a Christian? Does that police officer who pulled you over or might pull you over later, no warning. But is your Christianity on display when those interactions happen? Or is it denied? Do coworkers know that you're committed to God? Do your neighbors know why your house is empty on Sunday mornings? Do your children and grandchildren know that your greatest love is Jesus Christ because he's the redeemer of your soul? Let me just summarize today's message. God is building for himself a kingdom. It is not all that it one day will be when Jesus returns, but we as kingdom citizens are to live in this world as ambassadors who faithfully represent and diligently label, labor for his purposes and according to his power. 
And we do this. We do this by being exclusively committed to worshiping God for who he is. That's the great confession. By being wholly devoted to loving God with all you are. That's the great commandment. And by diligently participating in spiritual formation, both of ourselves and others. That is the great commission. As we know, one day God will fully establish his kingdom and our hearts will be whole before him as he rules and reigns the whole earth. But beginning today, we are to live for his glory as he has prescribed for us to do. And you can't do it on your own. If you're in Christ, you need Christ. If you're not in Christ, you need Christ right now. And so we pray that God would bring you into right relationship with himself, whether it's the first time or again through confession and prayer, that you would know him as the only God whom you worship with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your might, and that not only you, but those around you would be impacted by the greatness of his grace. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your mighty hand in our lives that, Father, you have done that which we could never do. You've given that which we could never pay back. And so, Lord, may we worship according to your strength, according to your power, according to your goodness. I thank you for this morning, Lord, that we can open your word, that you've given us the freedom to do this, gathered this morning as your church, your body, a family of believers. And we pray, Lord God, in agreement with your word, that it would not return void, but would produce in us worship, praise, thanksgiving, gratefulness, so that you might be put on display amongst your people and in this world. We love you, Lord God, and we thank you for loving us first. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.